One does not even have to be a thorough student of world history to understand something about the name Waterloo. It's uh, come to be a, a shorthand expression for when somebody goes down to uh, the despair of defeat. And uh, most people know that Waterloo has something to do with uh, the final end of the great Napoleon Bonaparte. But I think most of us actually, in fact, know very little beyond the name Waterloo, know very little about the specifics involved in the Battle of Waterloo. And certainly most of us do not uh, understand just uh, how close uh, a loss, in fact, that was for Napoleon or the reasons behind that defeat. Uh, One way to explore that very important, really pivotal moment in uh, Western civilization, Western history, is to take in hand a riveting new book called Waterloo, The History of Four Days, Three Armies, and Three Battles. The author is Bernard Cornwell, a much-admired author of mostly fictional books, historical novels in, uh, among them, and uh, many of them highly regarded bestsellers. Uh, but this is most emphatically a work of nonfiction, and uh, Bernard Cornwell in the past has already written about Waterloo, Uh, but does so this time around uh, through the lens of nonfiction and paints uh, a very vivid portrait, not only what ensued on those those days of the battle itself, but also uh, sets a a very rich historical context in which we can much better understand who Napoleon was and the state of affairs uh, which led him to literally his Waterloo. The book is published by Harper, an imprint of HarperCollins. Again, it's titled Waterloo, The History of Four Days, Three Armies, and Three Battles. Bernard Cornwell, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you, Greg. I wonder if you could just say a quick word about what it felt like to write about a a subject which you have explored so richly in the past uh, in in fiction. Uh, in, In this particular context, did it feel strange or foreign? Uh, did well, it, was, it, fe- it was actually rather humbling because I thought I knew quite a lot about the battle when I began the book and realized that, that I had vast areas of ignorance. Um, it, this, this is my first non-fiction book and I suspect it's my only non-fiction book. I mean, I enjoyed writing it. I actually enjoyed writing it thoroughly. It's a totally different process. I think 95% of the, the job of writing fiction is actually coming up with a story. Once you've got the story right, uh, it's all pretty easy. Uh, of course, with a, with a non-fiction book, you don't have to do that, and especially with Waterloo, because the, the story of the battle or the four days of the campaign is so compelling. It's an incredibly dramatic story with a hugely climactic ending. So I didn't have to do that 95% of the work. So instead, what was difficult was finding the voices of the men and women who were there on the battlefield, and there were women there. Um, and not just British voices, but, but French and Prussian as well. So, because I wanted the book to, to tell the story of what was it actually like to be there on that day. Uh, and that was really the hardest part of it. You uh, do a wonderful job of, of helping us understand who Napoleon was and, in a sense, sort of his state of affairs uh, at the time that Waterloo uh, was, was fought. In fact, you begin chapter one of the book by placing us on the tiny island of Elba. Remind our listeners about why Napoleon found himself uh, as the leader of this minuscule <laughs> island. <laughs> Very I mean, tiny island, yes. 
Uh, Elba is a tiny island that lays between, between Corsica and, and, and Italy. Um, it's a rather beautiful island, in fact. But remember that Napoleon had been a, a, a nuisance to Europe for some 20 years. And he'd finally been defeated in 1814. And he abdicated. And, and the conditions of his abdication were that he was, he was made the ruler of Elba, which is, you know, it, it, it was really a very decent sentence, if you like. The trouble was the French... Uh, who were supposed to pay him a pension, that sort of keep him out of trouble, refused to pay the pension. And, and Napoleon decided, well, if you're not going to keep your side of the bargain, I won't keep mine either. And so early in 1815, he returned to France. And the French flocked to him, and suddenly there was no monarchy again, and the empire came back, and Napoleon was resurgent, and he had a huge army whereupon the rest of Europe ganged up on him. Mm. One of the things I appreciated about the portrait you paint of Napoleon at this time on Elba is that he was bored and he was angry. And you've already well, pointed out that he was... He had nothing to do. And, you know, he, he had no money. He, he actually had great ambitions. He was a terrific administrator. He had great ambitions for the island. He wanted to resurrect his industry. He wanted to build schools and hospitals and roads. But he couldn't do any of those things because, because he wasn't being paid the money that had been agreed. So he really did have nothing to do. He was also very well aware that there was great dissatisfaction in France. In fact, in 1814, when he abdicated, the French were relieved to see him go. I mean, he'd caused countless deaths. And the French really were tired of war. And the last year of the war had been fought on French soil, so France itself had suffered badly. But one, you know, even six months of the new royal government turned the French back again, being pro-Napoleon, because Louis XVIII turned out to be really, or his administration turned out to be so inept. And Napoleon was aware of that. He was aware of great dissatisfaction in France. He was aware that the price of food had gone up, that there was great unemployment, that many of his veterans had nothing to do. And yeah, he was angry at what was happening to France. He was angry at what was happening to himself. But above all else, he was bored. And he was a man who very easily got bored. Um, he's an incredibly intelligent man, in many ways a very enlightened one. Um, I think he's, he's a terrific administrator. If he had one huge fault, it is, I think, that he was in love with war. Mm. Tell us about the color of violet. You write, during the winter of 1814 to 1815, many women in Paris wore violet-colored dresses, not just fashion, but rather a code which suggests yes um it was it, the violet stood for came in the spring and the violet was napoleon's color um the, the one woman i think he really truly loved was josephine the wonderful beguiling josephine and on their wedding day he gave her a bouquet of violets and she carried them up the up the aisle at her wedding and on every anniversary of the wedding he would send her a bouquet of violets and so so the violet became a kind of code in royalist france saying i support napoleon and women would wear violet-colored dresses, and men would wear a violet in their buttonhole. And it, and it, was, a, it was a sort of secret sign saying, we're on Napoleon's side. And uh, when, in fact, he did come back, um, people said, well, the violet has returned to France. Hmm. So Napoleon's return to Paris, um, was that entirely unopposed? It wasn't entirely unopposed. It was, it was, he was supposed to be opposed. I mean, Marshal Ney his great general, who had, who had decided to serve the king, set off to stop Napoleon. And there was the famous confrontation with the 5th Regiment of the Line, and they were supposed to capture Napoleon, and Napoleon sort of walked up to them and talked to them, and of course they all started to cheer him. I mean, in fact, the Royalist army went over to Napoleon's side, almost lock, stock, and barrel. In fact, they all deserted the king. A few of the officers stayed loyal, 
but the men were just pleased to have Napoleon back. And meanwhile, the veterans were all flocking to the colours, trying to get back into the army. I, so, uh, he, he really wasn't, I mean, no shots were fired. He was not seriously opposed at all. Hmm. I love the story that you tell about about uh, Napoleon's uh, return to, to the actual palace in Paris and what, uh, and what was done to the carpeting <laughs> in the palace. Well, the, the, this is the Tuileries Palace, and, and uh, they knew he was coming. And a huge crowd had gathered um, to, to welcome him, and most of the sort of empire of nobility were up in the, in the throne room. And, and the throne room had a, had a very rich carpet, and it was tufted, and each tuft was a, was a crown. And somebody, obviously hating the monarchy, kicked at one of these crown tufts, and it came loose, and underneath it was a bee. I mean, uh, uh, woven into the carpet, not a real bee. But the bee was also another of Napoleon's symbols. And suddenly they realized that, they, they, that Louis XVIII had ordered all the bees covered with crowns. So everybody got down on their hands and knees and ripped off these tufts to, so that they restore the carpet to its Napoleonic splendor. Mm. You tell us in trying to understand what Napoleon's hold was over so many of the people, I mean, that would, for instance, inspire so many of these soldiers to, in, in fact, uh, defect from Louis XVIII and return to Napoleon's side, that uh, Napoleon was careless with the lives of his troops, yet his soldiers adored him because he had the common touch. It's exactly right. I mean, it's one of those mysteries. He... he he really was careless with his troops. I mean, he, 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 he did not care about casualties. I mean, on the morning after Austerlitz, uh, one of the French generals was staring out across the valley, and he was weeping. And Napoleon said to him, what are you crying for? And the man said, well, look, sir, look. You know, I mean, look, look at all our dead. And Napoleon looked at him and said, the women of Paris can replace them in one night. Mm. And... You know, but so now nine years later, Talleyrand says to him, and if you continue the war, this was in 1814, he said, a million men will die. And Napoleon said, what are a million men to me? He was, he was very, his, his troops tended to take very high casualties, but they worshipped him. He, he did have that absolutely common touch. He knew how to talk to them. Uh, they loved him. And uh, he was a very inspiring man. At the same time, many of his senior generals, and some of them incredibly tough soldiers, were scared to death of him. Tell us about the uh, the defeat which Napoleon had suffered prior to all of these events, to being dispatched to Elba, because uh, does that help us understand what is uh, stretching out in the distance? Namely, oh, it does very much. You have to understand that the, the, the revolutionary and the Napoleonic wars are a series of coalitions against France. Almost all these coalitions were put together by Britain. And in 1814, the coalition, an overwhelming coalition, there was a British army invading France from the south, but from the north and from the east, there were the Prussians, the Russians, and the Austrians, three enormous armies. And in fact, Napoleon's defense against them was quite brilliant, but there was simply no way he could win. He was just outnumbered. So yes, you, if you understand it, it's almost always a coalition, that, that France doesn't actually have allies, it just has enemies. And once Napoleon returns, a new coalition is very quickly formed. And the coalition is once again Russia, Austria, Prussia, and Britain. And they decide that they will go to war, not, curiously, not against France, against Napoleon. 
And so, yes, it, it, it's, you know, the, the campaign of Waterloo is the beginning of a campaign by a coalition. Hmm. We're speaking with Bernard Cornwell, and we're talking about his fascinating book called Waterloo, The History of Four Days, Three Armies, and uh, Three Battles. So tell us about uh, the mystery that uh, was surrounding Napoleon when it was first discovered that he was not where he was supposed to be. I'm so, and I'm so glad you point this out because I think it's often hard for us to place ourselves back in, for instance, the year 1815 and to uh, understand the, the kind of <laughs> mystery that would often surround something as basic as, where is Napoleon? Exactly. I mean, he, the, the British commissioner, a guy called Sir Neil Campbell, had left the island, uh, and his job really was to keep an eye on Napoleon. I mean, I mean it was, it was, he was not supposedly his jailer, after all, Napoleon was the ruler of Elba. But in many ways, he, he, he was the guy who made sure Napoleon stayed on Elba. Um, and Sir Neil disappeared for a few days. In fact, what he did was he went off to Leghorn to see his mistress on the Italian mainland. He said he was going to see a doctor, but it happened that his mistress lived in the same town as the doctor. And Napoleon took that chance to escape, and he sailed north to France. Well. So Neil went back to Elba and found that the, the, the bird had flown. What he immediately did is he went back to Leghorn and sent a message north. But he said, I don't know where he is. Nobody knows where, and nobody did know where he is. They were all quite sure that Napoleon wouldn't go to France because they thought that if he did, the royal troops would capture him and probably shoot him. They thought maybe he'd gone to Naples. So for a few days, nobody knew where he was until because the news arrived from France that, in fact, he had gone back. Um, but, it, but it, you know, all this starts with Sir Neil Campbell going off to see his mistress. Hmm. So when they finally do discover exactly where Napoleon has headed, namely back to France and, uh, and, and realize his intentions, as you say, then this uh, new coalition, the King of Prussia, the Emperor of Austria, the Tsar of Russia, uh, are galvanized to declare war on Napoleon, on not Napoleon, on France. Yeah. Tell us about the agreement which was brokered about which what each of these countries then, uh, Russia, Prussia, Austria, and Great Britain, would bring to the task of bringing down Napoleon again. Someone said war was decided in less than an hour. This Because they were all at the Congress of Vienna. And what they decided at the Congress of Vienna was that each country would supply 150,000 men, an army of 150,000 men. So you're going to have 600,000 men converging on France. In fact, Britain always had a small army and could never raise that many men. So she paid money to the other three countries um, to make up the numbers. And Britain, in the end, had just over 40,000 soldiers, 40,000 soldiers in, in Holland, north of France. Uh, Austria and Russia both had 150,000 men who were coming from... They, they never actually got into the, into the campaign at all, of course. They were a week away. Uh, Prussia had about 125,000 men. So, you know, th these were very large armies. Um, and they were going to converge on France. And Napoleon realized that his best chance was to break them up. Um, the, the closest armies were the British Dutch army to the north and the Prussian army. Um, they were the ones that were threatening France. So he decided to march north, split them in two, send the Prussians one way and the British Dutch the other way, and then defeat each army in turn. That was the idea. And then if he did that, if he knocked Britain out of the coalition, there was always a chance that a new government would come in and sue for peace. 
was probably a pretty remote chance that it was worth trying. Mm. Uh, so that's really the story of the campaign, was this sudden lightning march north by Napoleon to break apart the British and the Prussians. At this point in time, I think it's really important for us to talk about uh, another figure involved in all this who is not nearly so well known as is Napoleon and yet is uh, central to this story that namely is uh, the, the Duke of Wellington. You write at one point, history rarely provides such a striking confrontation. The two greatest soldiers of the era, two men who had never fought against each other, were now gathering armies just 160 miles apart. The world's conqueror was in Paris, while the conqueror of the world's conqueror was in Brussels. Tell us more about this important figure, the Duke of Wellington. Well, the Duke is, is a towering figure. Um, I mean, certainly the greatest, the greatest British general of the, of the 18th and 19th century, and one of the greatest generals of all time. He was a, has the unique distinction of never having lost a battle. Uh, there was no doubt whatsoever in, that in 1815, nobody, nobody w would have argued with the fact that the two greatest generals of the age were Napoleon and Wellington. They were head and shoulders above everybody else. And as I said, they had never, ever met in battle. They were very, very aware of each other's reputation. Um, and in some ways, you know, this, this gives an added piquancy to the Battle of Waterloo. Both men are fighting for reputation. I mean, Wellington was certainly aware that, you know, he'd never lost a battle. He didn't want to lose that record. I mean, that's not the reason he fought Waterloo, obviously, but it, but it must have been in his mind. And equally, Napoleon must have known that if he beats Wellington, then he's beaten the only man in Europe who is considered his equal and rival at warfare. Mm. Um, so there is that extraordinary rivalry. The Duke was quite different from Napoleon. Uh, he's an aristocrat. He's quite cold. He had no small talk. He didn't know how to talk to his men. He was awkward if he had to talk to his men. On the other hand, the men, they didn't worship him as they worshipped Napoleon. But they did respect him. As one of them said, we know that if the Duke leads us, we will be as well looked after as it is possible, and we will be given victory. What more could a soldier want? But he was, he was in some ways a difficult man. There was an occasion in the Pyrenees when one of his um, generals was fighting a rather bad battle against the French, and the Duke was fighting another, and the Duke finished off his French opponents, rode across the hills, and came down to where General Hill was making rather a mess of things. And the, the, the Brit British see him coming and start to cheer, because they know they're about to be sorted out. And he says, stop them cheering. And one of the officers said, well, why don't you want them to cheer you, my lord? And he said, if they cheer you one day, they will jeer you the next. Mm. And, I mean, that's the kind of man he was. But it, on the other hand, within two hours, he'd finished off that battle, too. So he's an extraordinarily efficient general. He has an immense amount of common sense. He has a great deal of authority. He's a very, very impressive man. Um, but he's not... An, I mean, if, if you and I wanted to have dinner with either of them, we'd choose Napoleon. He'd be much more fun. <laughs> we're speaking with Bernard Cornwell, and we're talking about his book, Waterloo, The History of Four Days, Three Armies, and Three Battles. I, one of my favorite lines in this whole book is when you say, the loyalty of the French army to Louis XVIII melted in a moment giving Napoleon 200,000 troops. But I appreciate the fact that you go on to explain then that 
it wasn't just a matter of, of Napoleon's charisma leading these thousands and thousands of troops to his side, but that Napoleon had to organize all of this, and in a very short amount of time. You mentioned earlier in the interview that he was a superb organizer and administrator, and certainly he needed uh, all of that skill and more in this moment to very quickly assemble uh, this fighting force, which still was going to be outnumbered by the combined forces of his opponents. Yeah, and and, and he did that with his usual extraordinary skill. Um, In the end, he takes an army north of just over 125,000 men. It's a very, very fine army. He didn't have trouble so much raising the men. He would have liked far more, of course, but, but um, well, where his genius came in was, in fact, supplying the guns, the ammunition, uniforms, the whole logistics of it. And, and that was done very quickly and done superbly well. In fact, many people reckon that the army he led to Waterloo was perhaps the finest French army of the whole war. It was almost entirely composed of veterans who had seen service, was very, very experienced. If there, if there was a problem with that army, as, as the book shows, it was with the, the commanders, not with the men. As a matter of fact, that does seem to be maybe one area in which Napoleon made some uh, less than optimal choices, maybe in some cases choices that where there were no better alternatives uh, available to him. But nevertheless, there were some people placed in crucial positions of responsibility that, uh, that ultimately... Uh, let him down badly. He yeah. was very badly let down. The, the, the next rank down beneath the, beneath the emperor was the marshals. And to be a marshal of France was, was a sort of very high honor indeed. And he relied very heavily on his marshals. Well, unfortunately for, for Napoleon, the marshals in the Waterloo campaign really did mess things up. His chief of staff was a man called Marshal Sue, S-O-U-L-T. And Marshal Sue was a very fine soldier. But he'd never been a chief of staff, and as any, any ex-soldier listening to this knows, your chief of staff is incredibly important. He's the guy who translates the commander's orders into reality. I mean, the commander can say, okay, we want 50,000 men to march here. The, the chief of staff arranges how that is done and how the food is to reach them and what routes they're to march by and who's to command them and so on. And Sue turned out to be really very inefficient as a, as a, as a chief of staff. Uh, when the battle itself came... Napoleon handed over the, the handling of the battle entirely to, to Marshal Ney. Now, Marshal Ney was an extraordinary figure. I mean, the bravest of the brave. He was an incredibly, incredibly courageous and charismatic man. But Napoleon also said at one point, he's an idiot. And you think, well, if you know he's an idiot, why do you give him the battle? And in, and in many ways, Ney did mess it up. Uh, so, yes, he was unfortunate, I think, in, in his marshals. And there were plenty, I mean, Marshal Grouchy, who made entirely the wrong decision on the, on the day of the battle, and instead of marching to the sound of the guns, marched in the other direction. Uh, so he was unfortunate there. But, but uh, mm. and maybe that's probably the major reason he lost the battle. Mm. I want us to, uh, and I'm afraid we don't have much time left, but I, I want you to speak for a moment about one of the most interesting moments in this whole story, which does not take place on the battlefield at all. Uh, it is a ball, an elegant ball, which occurs on the night of, of June 15th, right on the eve of, of, of these uh, uh, horrific battles which are about to ensue. And, of course, it's, it's a moment like this that gives this whole story kind of a, a special air of, of mystique. Uh, it's, 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 yes, it's an incredibly romantic moment. The, the Duke of Wellington and indeed um, Marshal Blucher, who commanded the Prussians, 
had no idea that Napoleon had marched. In fact, as the day before, Wellington had written to someone in England and said, there's no chance of Napoleon coming in the next two or three days. And the Duchess of Richmond wanted to give a ball in Brussels. And, and this was incredibly fashionable. I mean, there was a huge ballroom, wonderful orchestra, candelabras, I mean, officers from the Dutch army and the British army, I mean, all in their sort of finery and, and women with their decollete, you know, low-cut dresses. I mean, it was absolutely wonderful. And in the middle of it, a messenger arrives and tells Wellington that Napoleon is threatening a crossroads not far south of Waterloo. And he makes the famous remark, my God, Napoleon has humbugged me. Um, in fact, he knew before he went to the ball that Napoleon had marched. He'd known for a couple of hours. And going to the ball made sense because all his senior officers were there. So in many ways, the ball served as an orders group. And um, a woman who spent quite a lot of the time with the Duke that evening said he was constantly interrupting their conversation to summon an officer and give him orders. And many of those officers then went off to, to the next day. They fought the next day at a battle called Quatre Bras. And they fought and died still wearing their silk stockings and dancing shoes. Hmm. In fact, the, the, the man who carried the news of Waterloo back to London and carried the captured French flags with him, Harry Percy, he was still in his dancing pumps and in his silk stockings. He'd fought through the Battle of Waterloo dressed like that. He had no time to change. And he turned up in this big ballroom in London wearing his, still wearing his sort of formal ball uniform smothered in blood and mud. It was a very sort of romantic moment, really. One of my favorite moments in the book actually comes in the foreword when uh, you say that uh, the, the Duke of Wellington himself was fond of, of saying that that a man might as well tell the history of a ball, meaning you know, an, an elegant dance like we just described, as write the story of a battle. And at first you read those words and you can't, you can't imagine how they can be possibly be true. And then you realize, yes, that, I mean, if, if one tried to write the story of a, of a big ball with all kinds of different guests and each one of them sort of living out their own little personal dramas, in a sense, that's an incredibly complex thing and, and impossible to encapsulate in one story. And then one thinks of a battle involving many time, many thousands of more participants, uh, and, uh, and, of course, the proverbial fog of war, which we often hear so much about. Uh, how difficult is it to pierce all of that and truly understand exactly what happened over the course of these three days and why? It's incredibly difficult and, uh, because everybody was involved. I mean, remember, this ended, really, this ended a hundred years of warfare between Britain and France, and it ends abruptly. It ends with this extraordinary defeat on Sunday, June the 18th. And everybody who survived that knew they'd been present at some great historic event, and they, they wanted to tell it. So they wrote letters, or they wrote it in their diary, or they wrote memoirs. And we have, we have hundreds and hundreds of accounts of Waterloo from, every, you know, from the French, the Prussians, the British. And yet no two accounts absolutely agree. And, uh, I mean, the most famous moment of the battle, perhaps, is the attack of the Imperial Guard at the, uh, in the evening. And, I mean, this really was a climactic moment, and it's the, it's the, it's the moment that finishes the battle when Napoleon's great imperial guard, the immortals, the undefeated, marched up this bloody ridge to, to assault Wellington's troops. And what follows is maybe 20, 25 minutes of fighting. And there's a lot about that we don't know. In fact, it was so obscure that the British first foot guards, who defeated the, the uh, chasseur guards of the imperial guard, thought they defeated the grenadier guards. And as a result, they took a name. They called themselves the Grenadier Guards. Well, in fact, the Grenadiers were nowhere near them. So even at the time, they were getting things wrong. 
And, I mean, if you read accounts of that assault, I mean, some say there were 10,000 Frenchmen coming up, some say there were eight, some say there were six. Nobody knows. Actually, we do know. We have a pretty good idea. Uh, so, yes, you, you have to see, as you call it, the fog of war. And in some ways, you simply have to make, you know, who do you believe? I mean, out of you read four or five accounts, and three of them agree, and using common sense. The Duke always refused to talk about it. Um, he, he simply, he hated authors. Can't blame him. <laughs> um, and he said, you can't tell the story of a battle. There's too much going on. Uh, it's simply impossible to disentangle what, what's happening which gave his critics um, a field day, because they could say more or less what they liked. Uh, not that he cared very much. As he said, I won the battle. What more do they want? Hmm. You tell us, for him, war was a regrettable necessity. Yes, war was fought for peace. Hmm. That's quite unlike Napoleon. But, I mean, uh, it, during that dreadful afternoon when, when men were dying by the score, and Wellington was riding among his troops, who had desperately assailed, and he promised them peace. He said, look, lads, if we survive today, if we win today, we're going to have a generation of peace. That was his promise to them. Um, Napoleon would have promised them glory and plunder and loot. Uh, Wellington went out of his way to tell them we're fighting for peace. A last question. Uh, you write at one point, some battles change nothing. Waterloo changed almost everything. And you, you, you make this statement in the context of apparently some people who would argue that Napoleon, because he was so badly outnumbered, was destined for defeat no matter what. And, and in that respect, then, defeat was inevitable, whether it happened at Waterloo or someplace else. Right. You, you take issue with that and, and believe that, in fact, Waterloo was crucial and, uh, and, and we need to understand this battle very specifically and thoroughly. I mean, in many ways, it's right. probably, we don't know, but probably Napoleon would have been defeated. We can't say that because we don't know what would have happened. You know, the what-ifs of history are completely unknown. But, yeah, the, the probability is that he would eventually have been defeated. But that's not the point, is that he was defeated at Waterloo. And therefore, to say that the, the place where the actual history turned is unimportant because it would have turned anyway is really to diminish both the turning point and the event itself. Waterloo was was a punctuation mark in history. Now, you know, what, what it led on to, of course, was what you might call the British century. Now, you may think it's a bad thing or a good thing. I don't care. But, I mean, it's what history is, what it was. And, you know, for the next 60, 70 years, Britain absolutely dominates the world. And in many ways, that was, it was a good thing for the United States because it meant that the United States didn't need to develop a deep water navy because its trade was protected by the Royal Navy. The Royal Navy's remit was to protect trade you know, in every ocean of the world. And, and many American historians have noted that, that, that American merchant ships sailed under the protection of the, of the, the British Navy for those years. Mm. Um, and that's what, this is really what happened at Waterloo. It, it finishes a century in which Britain and France had struggled for supremacy. For, and really, but supremacy means trade. Who is going to dominate the world? Britain wins, and Waterloo is the moment where that is sealed. And as you write in the foreword, it is a great story, not only in its combatants, but in its shape. It is a cliffhanger. No matter how often I read accounts of that day, the ending is still full of suspense. Well, that's the attack of the Imperial Guard, and literally the undefeated, the immortals. I mean, this, this was the, the, these were Napoleon's elite troops. Uh, to join the Imperial Guard, you had to be a veteran of three campaigns. You had to, you, you know, you had to be proven brave. 
uh, you got a special uniform, you got more money. They were, I don't think many people would have denied that they were probably the, um, certainly among the finest troops in Europe. Mm. And the point of the Imperial Guard was Napoleon didn't use them all the time. They, they were, they, if you like, they were his whole card. Uh, he threw them into a battle when things were desperate, uh, when the Prussians attacked on his right flank. And, and the French troops there began to give way. He sent in units of the Imperial Guard, who immediately restored, restored the position. And he knows that as the evening is falling, it's almost the longest night of the year. Uh, daylight will last until at least 10 o'clock, but it's now about 8 o'clock. He knows that his last chance of breaking the British line, that has been stretched incredibly thin, is to throw in his Imperial Guard. And so the climax of the battle is this attack by the immortal, by the undefeated Imperial Guard, who climb a hill littered with corpses and dead horses and littered with broken guns. And they climb this hill to, to, to meet the British guards. And it is an extraordinarily dramatic moment. Mm. And we can read about it and all kinds of fascinating, illuminating details are surrounding it in this uh, marvelous book called Waterloo. The History of Four Days, Three Armies, and Three Battles, published by Harper, an imprint of HarperCollins, and the author, Bernard Cornwell. Bernard Cornwell, thank you so much for writing such a remarkable book and for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about it. I have enjoyed this very much. Thank you, Greg.